Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we're talking sophomore surge. Those bands that started out a little slowly and then hit the jets. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, rate and review us on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook for more info. Now let's get to the sophomore surge. back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, today we're doing the companion piece to our other pod, the Sophomore Slump. Today is the Sophomore Jump or the Sophomore Surge. Um, basically, uh, bands are artists that took a dramatic leap from their first to second album. Um, you know, these are gener- generally uh, fantastic records, but um, it's more the, the the distance that they covered between the first and second records that were uh, more remarkable. Um, and worthy of note. <clears throat> so I want to uh, actually toss it out to, uh, I'm here with Jeremy and Christian both today. It's a full brother, brother, brother podcast. And uh, I want to throw it out to you guys to, you know, um, you know if you have any thoughts uh, for the original um, sort of, or the, the quantum leap type of category, the, the sophomore surge. I know, Christian, you were doing a lot of uh, hip-hop um, research and, and you you were uh, you were going to cover uh, some of the bands that that went from yeah to uh, fantastic within the course of a two album um, time period Wh- who who would you start off with in that um... so I picked uh, I, I came up with uh, with six groups or six albums I guess I should say that that I thought really um, you know really pulled pulled their act together on the second on the second album. I think the, the first one was, um, in some of these cases, uh, pretty good. Uh, but the second was really just sort of a, a standalone, you know, phenomenal piece. And, and, um, I think one of them, uh, Jeremy and I, and, and you have talked about, uh, before within the context of the, of the sophomore slump actually, um, just as a, as a sort of point of reference or a point of comparison. And that was, that was tribes low end theory. Um, I, I'm going to move through these sort of chronologically, but just to start off there, you know, I think this is a this is a great example because you go from people's instinctive travels to um, you know to an album where like all of a sudden you can really start to see the chemistry sort of gel between Q-Tip and Fife Dog. Um, you know, all of a sudden Fife Dog he's he's not just the backup guy or the sidekick or um, you know sort of there to support Q-Tip. Like he's really got his own voice um, and he's sort of he's dominating on a couple tracks. Um, you know, really sort of taking lead on on uh, on the vocals. I don't know. Do you do you agree with that, Jeremy? You were uh, you. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this album, and, and uh, I've talked about it before. And, and I think uh, I think it's a great point. I think it became two MCs as opposed to where uh, <clears throat> Q-Tip really dominated the first album. And Fife had the classic, you know, sort of throw-in line, Mr. Dinkins, will you please be my mayor, on Can I Kick It being one of those. Yeah, you're sort of the hype man. But um, this album, two things. I, I think you're right on with the Fife sort of prevailing as, as a, a 2MC group. And then also just the sound of this record is, so is a departure. Yeah, it's that heavy sort of classic jazz sampling and, and the bass. And um, 
you know, I remember this album pretty vividly. I think I was in, you know, high school or junior high. I can't remember exactly the year it came out. But uh, I was living in, in New Jersey right outside of New York. And <clears throat> the De La Soul sort of native tongue, Jungle Brothers, Tribe Called Quest thing was was very, let's say, the kind of college music charts. This album, everybody loved. So it was a huge album in the hip-hop community as well. And not just sort of the, the you know, college uh, radio kind of um, alternative charts. It was an album that really hit the streets, and, uh, well, and I think is you know a lot to be said for the sound, and then laid down a groove that has continued to you know be heard through New York hip hop. Well, this now. is this is a really interesting point, I think, because you know I I think these guys were like they were incredibly literate, um, both uh, both lyrically I think, but also you know musically literate, right? Like they were pulling from. Um, all sorts of uh, all sorts of different reference points and vantage points, whether it was jazz, soul, funk, um, you know, plus the sort of contemporary hip hop of like the late '80s and and you know uh, up and through 1991 when it came out. Um, but you know, I think what, what's interesting is now you you do often see like that those types of artists don't necessarily get the same like broad radio play. So I'm thinking about guys like Common. Um, you know, you would never hear that like on DC rap radio or like Baltimore rap radio, um, where I was in college, you know, or I honestly, I've never listened to the radio in New York. So, uh, so I couldn't well, tell you what's in, on back there. Back in the early nineties, it was a lot different anyway. Yeah. Um, there was a handful of outlets, some of which made it, some of which didn't, but there were sort of a, you know, it was almost, you know, obviously pre-internet. Um, but it was, um, the beginning of a sort of interactivity, uh, that, that, you know, foretold the internet. There used to be, uh, a, you know, there was MTV, and it was back when MTV played a lot of music, which uh, it used to be named for. And, um, you know, so there was UMTV Raps, which was hugely influential. But in New Jersey, New York, there was also something called The Box, which Jeremy can speak to. <laughs> I do remember The Box. Which was actually, I, I'm not sure if it was genuinely pay-to-play, but basically you called up, gave your credit card number, and requested videos. And you would see every single hip-hop artist break there, and including also, it's the first time I ever heard, you know, and we'll maybe talk about this group later, but it smells like Teen Spirit as well. So anything new and underground would come off the box, and we religiously watched the box, and I may have phoned in... Uh, what was Madonna's like controversial sex video that MTV wouldn't play? Um, <laughs> nice. I want your. Uh, no, it was. Um, <laughs> Can't remember. Oh God! Uh, keep going, and I'll remember. Yeah. But no, and, and that was huge. But so to your point, your point about how like um, how this sort of crossed, I guess you know, bridge genres, um, but also sort of bridged uh, like different listening groups. Um, you know, I think sort of within within hip hop itself, like I loved um, when I was I was reading about this earlier and, and sort of uh, doing research for this pod. And, you know, one of the things that um, one of the awesome quotes that I saw was was Q-Tip, who was saying, you know, it was it was really when he was listening to Straight Outta Compton that he was inspired to make the low end theory. Um, and that years later he talked to Dre, uh, and Dre told him that hearing the low end theory then inspired him to make the chronic. So there's this sort of awesome interplay and, and, um, I think sort of cyclical quality to this that like, you know, it really fed into the, the, you know, main channel of, of like the, the middle of the road of rap, but even though it sort of feels like it exists a little bit on the, on the fringes. It was a, it was, um, an updating of the old, um, you know, Paul McCartney heard pet sounds and decided he had to make Sgt. Pepper kind of thing or, yeah. you know, vice versa. Um, so, so I have one question, though, just content-wise. What the fuck is a Sky Pager? 
It's a... Uh, it's funny you should ask. <laughs> um, I don't know if you were... Uh, I, I'm, as I rec- to the best of my recollection, you were two or Not three alive. when this album came out. <laughs> and um, should you have ever wanted to have dealt drugs in those days? Uh, there were no cell phones, so basically someone could page you, uh, their phone number would come in, and then you'd go to something called a payphone, yeah. and you'd put something called change in it. Coins in there. <laughs> and How is that different from back. a beeper? It's not. It's the same. It's just the same. Oh. Sort of a beeper and a pager yeah. are interchangeable. Interchangeable. Okay. With um, a little bit of gold and a pager. Quoth easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, sorry. It was, uh, yeah. Gotcha. Was, I just, I'd never heard the term sky pager. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was really, um, I mean, uh, my first interaction with it was for people who give out medicine legally. Um, it was generally. Second interaction. Medical. Second interaction <laughs> was with people who don't. <laughs> yes. Yes, as a matter of fact. So um, gotcha. Yeah, so so that's, that's anyway. That's that's the that's a great starting point. I think we I think we we nailed that one. But you know, it's really yeah. Tribe low end theory, nineteen ninety one. That's awesome. So when I'm, I think we're just gonna I think we're just gonna go free for all on this one. It's, all right, cool. I, I, I'm you know I'm all for doing a, a hip hop section and a non hip hop section. But fuck it, let's just uh, let's just go for you know whatever comes to mind first. And I, I you know my I'm gonna take my. Uh, uh, I think my third swipe at this album in in uh, as in as many podcasts, but um, to me one of the great uh, um, sophomore surges uh, was Dinosaur Junior. Uh, going from Dinosaur, um, finding out that there was a lawsuit if they stuck with the name, tacking on Junior, and uh, coming out with "You're Living All Over Me," which um, you know it. it so it had so, so so many touch points in my life, um, but also, and I think, just remarkably, a band who sort of kind of came out with a sound and then came out with a sound. You know, I mean, they they set the table much like I think Nirvana did. Um, they came out with a indie record that was, you know, fairly cheaply produced, and you know, you could if you were an esca- excavator, you could see where the bones of where they were going were. But in this case, you know, the first album, yeah, I can see some potential. Second album, boom, this is what they sound like. And uh, it was a rocking record. I mean, that is such a... It still uh, is. It totally lives up to it. I mean, it stands... I, I think you just made a really interesting point, though, that I, I just wanted to pick up on really briefly, which is that, like, you know, it's really easy to see in retrospect um, what Bleach... Uh, had, you know, in terms of potential or what Dinosaur had in terms of potential. Um, but I think, you know, when you're, you know, when you're looking back and you see what they ultimately became, it's, you know, it's, it's no problem. Um, but if you were there at the time, you might not necessarily have thought, wow, this is really going to morph into the fullest, that, you know, like to, to live up to its potential or sort of reach and, everything it could, you know. And I, and I was there at the time. And yeah. the, the fact is, you know, I heard Bleach. Um, but I was even more there at the time with Dino because they were from the town I went to college in. Uh, they recorded at my friend's studio, um, and you know they. It, it was really, and I saw them a lot back then. I mean, and um, there was no difference between the record and the live sound either. It was uh, they were actually another little aside from you know from the old people corner. But uh, Dino, when I was in co- when I was first in college. Um, I went to school in, in Amherst, and they were not allowed to play in Amherst or Northampton, which are uh, the two towns with colleges in them out in Western, out in that section of Western Mass. 
Uh, they weren't allowed to uh, play either town because they were too loud. Their towns actually we, weren't allowed. They, they were not allowed to play in Sheehan's or, or any of the Amherst clubs. Pearl um, Street? Pearl Street, no. So... Well, that was... Well, then when you brought me on my, uh, on my you know... College trip. Put in air quotes, college trip, because yeah. um, really it was just like a, a concert tour in New England. But, um, you know, yeah, that was... Uh, that was their first show back at Pearl Street, I think, in like exactly. 20 first years show. or something. So but so they played this place called Katina's in Hadley, which was the town in between that had a lot less... Uh, um, just not a college town. <laughs> no, it's not a college town. It's where, all the, it's where all the big box stores are in between Amherst and Northampton. And, and long story short, Katina's was a split-level ranch um, that had a stage and had a snake uh, and a glass case <laughs> in the, in, underneath the dance floor. And... Um, <laughs> It was, uh, I mean, they could turn up their full volume there and just go nuts. And that's it didn't what bother did. the snake? Uh, you know yeah. what, hope, hope to God it did. I hate snakes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an album, too, and, and I think Wynn and I have talked about this, that Dinosaur Jr. also knows is their best, because I don't think I've seen them live, and they've not played at least 50%. three quarters of yeah. this album. And, uh, and rightfully so, it's such a good, good album. But I, I think at that time, Wynn, and correct me if I'm wrong, and not to stay on this one too long, but... You can say the same about Nirvana if we want to slip into Nirvana next. I don't think anyone really listened to the first Dinosaur Jr. album until You're Living All Over Me came out. And I definitely know for my world, Nirvana obviously blew up my music world. Bleach was an afterthought. I'm sure people in the Northwest probably knew Bleach, but it wasn't an album that was really out and about or buzzed about much. I wouldn't have known the first Dinosaur album had I not gone to school there. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, the first Nirvana album I sort of knew... I guess it was almost, it must have been a year or two later, but only by association, only because people like, in articles, people like Dino <laughs> and uh, Sonic Youth talked about them. And so, and, and I really, I mean, to your point, Christian, I was very much in the what's the big deal camp. I liked one song because it was kind of poppy. Yeah, the, the one that didn't sound like the other one, <laughs> basically. That um, a girl. Yeah, so, I mean, and then you can get into Nirvana Nevermind, which is, you know, the sort of, the colossal sonic boom of, of uh, sophomore surges. Yeah, Three-year tr- three gap, though, which is actually a pretty long time when you think about it. I mean, you know, the dino and, and um, you're living all over me were, were sort of bang, bang, like a year apart, right? Yeah, um, Whereas, like, like 80, Nirvana, Nirvana covered a three-year gap and a lineup change. Yeah, uh, I was going to say they lost a guitarist, added a better drummer, yeah, and then, uh, you know, went into the studio and went full out. And, and that album, you know, we probably aren't going to do Nirvana, never mind, and Justice compared to what's million books and documentaries and everything that's been written about that album. But I can just talk from my own perspective of, of being into bands like Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth and, and living in suburban New Jersey at the time and... You know, kind of it was sort of my my little secret, right? I liked all these kind of oddball bands, but, you know, my friends were listening to Zep and Stones and Beatles and all the stuff most people listen to, and then pop radio. And that album just kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, I remember hearing that on the box again. Thank you, box. Still around. And uh, just being like, what the fuck? Like, that is so good. (laughs) You know, when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out, it was so good. And it it changed everything. I mean, it really did. It, It Blew a hole through the underground rock, killed hair metal, um, which, you know, we kind of talk about Appetite for Destruction also killing hair metal. But, you know, this really put the, the nail in the coffin. And, uh, you know, and all of those bands that I, I kind of loved sort of secretly that no one else liked that Wynn had turned me on to, 
all of a sudden became sort of mainstream names, including Dinosaur Jr. and, and some of the other brands we talk about today. But um, yeah, I think it was it was sort of you know it was such a, a massive blast. It was so strange how that happened. But that was it. Didn't um, you know? To be fair, it didn't happen the first day that album was released. That album no. took a just a had a pretty decent gestation period before it went um, huge. And, and another album that, that had a really really similar. Another band, I would say, made their song. Uh, I guess we, it, it's kind of a fre- their freshman album, but um, but another album that had almost an identical trajectory was Guns N' Roses. And both times, I remember hearing the song for the first time and being like, "This, uh, you know, um, this is not a re- retrospective thing. This was in real time. It was just like this is going to change everything." And you know, but both albums took about a year to really, or maybe you know, six months to maybe a year, less, six months probably. But it was. It was one of those things, too, where back when record companies, radio used to put you in a genre. So, you know, at the time, speaking of MTV, you had some some alternative shows. You had 120 minutes on Sunday nights. And you had Headbangers Ball on Saturday mm-hmm. nights. So, and and, and you MTV rap, exactly. And it was sort of a lines between rap, so-called metal, and, you know, certain kind of so-called alternative music or, or Love the Dial. And Nirvana was the band that merged at least Saturday and Sunday yeah. night together. It's funny. I will tell you... Um, Guns N' Roses would never be played on 120 Minutes, though people who loved alternative rock at the time loved Guns N' Roses. But also, and alternative rock wasn't like a, a, that didn't exist as a as a like declared genre, right? I mean, it that did was, though. It, it was, was called alternative at the time. But yeah. it just wasn't. It did become an alternative rock radio format until it, yeah, after. it got more much more crystallized later and much more shitty later. But the other, you know, the other piece of it was, um, I think the band that really bridged. The gap between the two was Jane's Addiction, and Jane's Addiction came out. Um, uh, when they came out, it was sort of like they were on both, and nobody kind of knew what to do with that. Uh, and that, th- again, this is from an MTV programming perspective. None That's of the show, none of the shows, being played on anything but college <laughs> yeah. radio. So the next one that actually uh, dovetails nicely with this, which is uh, strange, but only because I saw them on the same bill, is uh, My Bloody Valentine, Loveless which um, I had the great pleasure while I was driving over here today of having it be, having um, XMU on satellite radio uh, playing a retrospective on Loveless because uh, it's the 20th anniversary, 25th anniversary this month of That's the right. release. And so they had people like Interpol and other people, you know, sort of giving commentary on the album. But I, um, at the Ritz, which is now Webster Hall in New York City, um, I saw... And my bloody Valentine, Dino, and the screaming trees on us on the same bill, um, nice. which was loud. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm very lucky not to have tinnitus at this age. And um, but my bloody Valentine to me, uh, I don't. You know, a lot of people, you know, love their first album and sort of hold them in tandem. I I wasn't as crazy about it. Um, Is that true? That's funny. Um, I I think of Loveless as being like. They're really defining. I mean, that, oh, it that is, is absolutely. The, but people, you know, people like their first album, and it wasn't like a, a shit show that. Uh, no, it's yeah, sort of, you definitely know. You definitely know where they were coming from. It didn't. It, it wasn't anything. Was that eighty seven or eighty eight? Eighty eight is the yeah, first album. Yeah, um, and then eighty nine was. Yeah, Loveless. Yeah. No, ninety. Uh, first album is the year Christian was born. Was right. it? Yeah, because I think Loveless was ninety one. Okay, that that may be true. Actually, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. And, um, yeah, if, in fact, if we're celebrating the 20th, 25th anniversary, yeah, I know none of us <laughs> are very <laughs> good at math. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but uh, you know, I, I you know, it's it sort of interesting because I didn't think of them as as a particularly loud band because of the album. Yeah, the album doesn't come across like the live show does, where your pants legs are blowing in the wind yeah, from the was, amps. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, their live show was as loud as it got as as any I've ever heard. And Dino's crazy loud. I think it's kind of funny. Let's let's stick on this album for a minute because I'd like to hear Christian's point of view of coming to this album much later. Like when I actually, we talked about this a little bit on, um, uh, what do we call it? Power Pop. I had an old Columbia House subscription where I used to like pay a penny and get a, you know, a certain amount of albums a month and CDs a month. And My Bloody Valentine Loveless was one of the two good ones I got out of my, you know, two year subscription. And, uh, I, I, this album, my, I wasn't my favorite. I liked it when it came out. I, I've, I've actually, I'm, I'm one of the dissenters. Like I like this album. I think it's good. Um, it definitely influenced a lot of, I was into other bands like Ride and some of the other sort of quote unquote shoegaze bands more than I was my bloody Valentine. But I'm just interested to hear Christian, your point of view of coming. This album has become obviously a huge kind of cornerstone and in, in kind of indie rock lore and, and, uh, you know, a lot of the music we love. I, I gotta say, well, the first, I mean, I, I remember the, the, the moment that this actually, this arrived in the mail and it was for my birthday and it was from Wyndham. So, um, so in that respect, I got it from a reputable source or, or disreputable source, whichever yeah. you want to, um, whichever you want to say. But, uh, you know, I think the very first impression I have was that's a, that's an awesome album cover. Um, I, I love the art for this. And, uh, and then of course you throw it on and it's like, it's completely engrossing from those first couple of uh, uh, first couple of uh, bars. Um, I mean, it's just this huge sort of uh, huge sound, and I mean that yeah, really no sucked me right in. No. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so so full. It's funny that you said uh, you know you you wouldn't necessarily imagine them to be that loud. I I actually I completely disagree. I I thought that that would be loud as hell. I mean, it's such a sort of like. Um, rich uh, texture, I guess. But, um, you know, I, for me, it was like, I didn't really hear about them. I didn't really read about them. Um, I just sort of knew that uh, somebody with, you know, appreciably better taste than I had at 14 or 15 um, recommended them to me. And, and therefore, like, it was, I knew they were cool without, you know, sort of the first time I, I'd ever heard of them. Um, so it's a slightly unfair advantage in that respect. Uh, but you know, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely think it stands up and it's actually one that I go back to all the time. It's funny. I think the reason I didn't think they were going to be that loud is because of the delivery system. Again, it's technology thing that, you know, we all that we talk about between the, the three different ages that we are. Um, my first introduction to my bloody Valentine was probably on television. You know, it's probably oh, yeah. on 120 minutes or something like that where, um, you know, it, the, the sound was just flat. And so, you know, the, the dynamics weren't as, and weren't as, uh, you know, evident at the time. The other, the other funny thing about, um, I was thinking about this when I was driving down listening to the, um, 25th anniversary, um, retrospective is, you know, I mean, the thing that gets lost on shoegaze is the reason it was called shoegaze is, I mean, it sounds like a really cool kind of, uh, terminology for the kind of music it is. What it really was was a group of bands that were just really fucking boring. Live. Yeah, they stared at their shoes. <laughs> I mean, they didn't move on stage. So it was, um, you know, part of that was I, what didn't appeal to me all that much. I mean, I loved 
Ride and some of the other bands. I don't. I never thought really. Of I never. Well, I never knew what the term was until like yeah, the, two years ago. <laughs> I listened to all those bands. And yeah, that, that was kind of a name that came up later. But you know, the the fact of the matter was, it was. It, I think it was coined by the British press to, to describe bands that just kind of stood there and, and looked down and didn't make any inter- didn't have any interaction with the audience. So, um, anyway. Moving on from my bloody Valentine, what? Give us another hip hop classic that's a sophomore surge. All right, so sticking with the with the chronological theme here, we'll uh, we'll we'll jump forward in time from ninety one to uh, to to nineteen ninety three um, with Cypress Hills, uh, Black Sunday. This album rocks, and compared to their um, you know eponymous debut, um, which I loved. Yeah, this is... Descent on this one. <laughs> are you really? Sorry. Um, yeah, I love the first one. I, I But, I mean, I, I think that their signature sound developed so much um, between that first and second album, and, like, the sampling that they used, I mean, DJ Muggs, like, you know, was, was always, like, had eclectic taste, but I think one of the cool parts about this and, and sort of the reason that it became such a massive success, and you really can't argue with that. I mean, it came in and, and you know, it actually topped the charts... Um, it's, you know, three and a half, four times platinum, something like that. Um, but I mean, the guy, like, they sampled Harry Nielsen and Black Sabbath. Um, you know, it's like, that's, that wasn't... It was ballsy then. Yeah, we were talking about Tribe and the fact that, you know, okay, um, maybe they're sampling, like, uh, you know, old sort of black jazz musicians and stuff like that. It's like, nobody was crossing over into 70s, like, you know, uh white guy mullet rock um, no, the, I think the first the first two times I ever really remember being struck by you know somebody sampling a song that I just would never think that anybody would sample hits from was, the bottom um, no it was um, uh, regulate um, and um, which samples keep forgetting by Michael McDonald <laughs> and um, the other one was uh, sometimes I rhyme slow sometimes I rhyme quick where they Edie Burkell, wasn't it? No, it was... Uh, oh, was it Edie Burkell? I, think I was so. thinking it was uh, Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. Yeah, it was one of those. It was one of those. Somebody else made a sample of Edie Burkell. But yeah, it was sort of like this, wait a second, I can't believe those guys went there. And well, then, the of dusty, course, I think later, the dusty Jay-Z, Hard Knock Life. I think the Dusty... Well, yeah, that was that was definitely a, a game changer. Although, that was actually the first song I remember seeing that in a music video and, and loving the melody um, and sort of like, as a, as a kid, going out and um, buying... Uh, uh, Life and Times of Sean Carter, Volume Two, which I made the mistake of promptly throwing on in the car with my mom, which was a really like <laughs> awkward experience. But, um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean Dusty Springfield's good, um, you know, son of a preacher man for for as the as literally the instrumental for um, for hits from the bong. So I mean that's a it's a pretty huge album, and I, and look, I I like the the debut as well, but I think this is just a uh, a tour de force and really a, yeah exactly a, a, a great leap forward so. yeah and when you put it that way it is a it is a big album and it was a, a huge hit and, and definitely a, a, I think an advancement I think for my age the first album was just really big for us too in kind of an underground way but, again it was um, big on the box yeah exactly <laughs> in northern Jersey the box. <laughs> but anyway so I the the next one I wanted to to uh um, address was uh, Radiohead, uh, the Benz, which I, I very distinctly remember. This was a, a turning point for me because um, this is when Jeremy really started running things up the chain. Um, 
I had I really didn't like the song Creep, and it was a pretty big hit, pretty big hit single. I, I actually really like it now, but at the time, just the the chorus really bothered me, um, and so I kind of dismissed the band, um, and. Uh, Jeremy, you know, is just like, oh, the, the new Radiohead's really good. And I'm like, those guys suck. And, uh, you know, then uh, I put on the Benz. And I think we all dismissed it. I mean, it came out. I mean, we were, I think somehow Bush came up recently from a Sound Opinions uh, podcast we are talking about. And we were just flooded with crappy kind of post-Nirvana rock. And, and Radiohead really fell into that for me. I hated Creep, too, even though my uh, high school band Morning Dew or Stone Grandma, <laughs> I can't remember which one, might have covered it. Um, but, you know, it was... Uh, I, I couldn't stand that song. It was rhymey, it was annoying, and I, I like it now as well. And, and it's funny how I came upon... It was the year before I went to college, so it was the summer before, and I, I came upon um, the Benz, which is another extinct entity, watching some obscure music show maybe on vh1 or on on you know on cable and it was a critic from rolling stone spin the Vi- you know vibe magazine i think all of which are most of which are extinct at this point and a couple other at um, least the souls are <laughs> a couple other music magazines and they all named radiohead the Benz as the best album of the year and so it just spiked my curiosity and and from there, I, you know, the singles that I heard, you know, which sold me on it with Fake Plastic tree and Trees and, and Just and um, High and Dry were the three singles just, off that album blew I me away. I didn't realize High and Dry was a single. I was about to toss that out there as the one that, oh, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I just yeah. think... Those were the three singles. Um, the first single was actually Fake Plastic Trees, yeah. which is one of my all-time favorite songs. It was, it was such a remarkable, like... Really, those guys? Because it was, um, yeah. you know, I just it, it was a uh, to me that's a different band from from Pablo Honey. I mean, Pablo Honey a, had a single. And yeah, it was, it's not uh, a great album. It's, yeah, it's kind of weak. I think, and, and I think they, ad, you know, they admit that. And um, not only did it, they admit it, I mean, I think that this is the I, two things I think we're sort of taking for granted here. Number one is like, okay, they are actually better musicians than ninety five percent of the field, um, and you know the way they write songs is is really intelligent and you know um, very sort of collaborative in a way that it isn't for a lot of bands. So I mean, these guys I think are actually are, are genuinely a cut above the way you can say sort of of certain generational groups. So they had that going for them. But to your point about like the first album, I mean. They don't play creep anymore. They hate that song openly. I've seen them. I have seen them play it, but it's it's a rarity. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't mean to to speak in absolutes, but but like they they openly say that they think it's a, a thin song, and they they you know sort of like they don't look very highly on that particular chapter of their work. Um, I agree. Although you know, I hate to. Say, it falls into that uh, that uh, category of song. Those you know songs were way better covered by other people. Yeah, yeah, I've heard some some good covers. Prince, and, I've heard some yeah. awful covers of it too, though. So. Oh yeah, well, Jeremy's actually <laughs> child choirs. Some, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this album too kind of set the table right for Radiohead. Is you know kind of a, a quintessential band of of our generations and all of our generations, and and it's you know they've they've become something bigger than than anybody would have thought, and. I, arguably, Ben's tends to be kind of an album I lean on heavily because it was my, my introduction to them. Obviously, OK Computer, you know, Kid A. I mean, you can go on and on about what they became. But um, I think it, you know, started off, it set the table for what became the Radiohead we know today and, and uh, a huge leap forward and a great album. Yeah, I would, you know, I'm going to couple that with a band that 
uh, you know, sort of, um, I wouldn't call them American Radiohead by any stretch, but a band that really, uh, you know, sort of evolved dramatically over the first several albums, um, you know, but another band that I fairly summarily dismissed after their first album, and that's Wilco. Um, AM, to me, is a, uh, you know, in retrospect, it's a, it's a nice little record. Yeah, but, it's a good record. Um, it's really gotten, it, it, it just hasn't, it shows none of the potential. Um, it's better post. They, for where they went. Again, it's a nice companion piece now. It's sort of like, you know, hearing somebody's demos. But, um, you know, the songwriting was weak, thin, um, you know, has some good melodies and stuff. But, you know, then you get to being there. And then it, it was another time when I think Jeremy, again, might have been living in Texas or something at that point. But he's just like, you got to hear being there. Yeah, no. So this was an album that, uh, again, I just moved to Austin and, and not to focus on kind of my story of my life here. But, um, you know, Wynn and I and talked about Sunvolt kind of blowing the first Wilco album out of the water when we did uh, Which Sophomore did. Slumps and Sunvolt falls into the sophomore slump. This was just one of those, it's a double album. It's a, it's a kind of, you know, almost a rock opera to the love of rock and roll if you really listen to it start to finish. Uh, Jeff Tweedy added a guy named Jay Bennett, rest in peace, who kind of filled out the soundscape and, uh, you know, just put together an album that has some experimentation, some Stones jams, some, you know, great country kind of songs, some great rock and roll and some great pop. And uh, I was lucky enough to see these guys on the last night of the Being There tour. And I'll never forget, you know, Jeff Tweedy coming out and they played, they opened up with Misunderstood, which just sort of opens the album and is is filled with sort of acoustic kind of country feedback wearing a witch's hat and falling off the stage and being caught by absolutely no one and hitting the pavement harder than I've ever seen anyone hit the hit the you know concrete floor and getting back up and playing one of the best rock and roll shows I've ever seen you know full on with you know black flag covers and led zeppelin covers by the end of the night but I, I think you know again kind of Wilco has become an, uh, not an American radiohead by any means I think two totally different bands but uh the rare thing these days where you have a, a truly American band that's put together a string of albums that are all very good and uh, it really started with, with a double album which you never see anymore either or very few people pull them off. Yeah. So we're going to take a break now. Uh, when we come back, we're going to complete this list and by no means do I mean complete the list of sophomore surges but we're going to complete our list of sophomore surges. So we'll be back in a few minutes. back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We're talking about the sophomore surge today, which is um, the uh, an album, obviously a sophomore effort from a band or artist that really makes a quantum leap uh, and establishes them either as megastars, great recording artists, or just uh, supersedes their first one by such an enormous amount that it's worthy of note. Anyway, I think one of those people that uh, actually did all three of those things um, was Amy Winehouse with Back to Black. Uh, she had put out her first album, Frank, which is good, 
And, you know, I think, I think anybody who's seen the documentary Amy or really heard any of her demo tapes, um, you know, will tell you that she could read the phone book or sing the phone book and it would be really good. Uh, but back to black, really, she found the right producer and Mike, Mark Ronson and, uh, they just put together, you know, what sounded instantly, just didn't, it didn't even just sound instantly classic. It sounded instantly standard, which is a really difficult thing to do. And it almost never happens uh, this late in the game. Um, you know, I, I think Back to Black sounds like it can go next to Dusty and Springfield. You know, Frank Sinatra's The Capital Years, even though I like it much more than that. And, um, you know, or, or, you know, any number of, um, you know, those sort of classic... Uh, vocal-centric kind of <clears throat> albums. I mean, go for it. It's, it's an interesting point that you make. I mean, I think the, the idea of, of producing a standard in, um, uh, in modern time or in real time, um, you know, is, is a challenging thing to do because standards by nature, I, I think, you know, in, in my mind are sort of old-timey albums, right? And, and mm-hmm. it's sort of, you need a little bit of distance from them and it sort of caters to a... Um, uh, a different crowd, I guess. But in this case, you know, what was incredible was the fact that she she was able to capture that sound. I mean, it was clear that she had a generational, like a sort of once-in-a-generation voice, I think, um, or a handful of times in a generation. I mean, that, that really is something that I think you can recognize pretty easily um, without having a particularly uh, highly trained um, sort of eye or ear for this sort of thing. Um, but, but you know, it, it really was impressive how she was able to sort of tie... Um, the, the, you know, obviously timeless themes like love and, and relationships, but also, you know, very modern settings for it, right? So whether it was talking about, um, you know, uh, texting or sort of the context of, you know, or, or the club scene or whatever it was, like these were things that sort of would get woven into some of the lyrics and, and the songs. But, um, you know, she was able to sort of, uh, I think, you know, create a, she was a vibe that sort of became, modern shit. Right. And it's sort of it you know instantaneously that it's gonna stand up to time. The the other thing I would say, you know, I mean you know, you call her a once in a life, once in a generation voice or whatever. It was you know, it was one of those like, you know, a handful of uh, in a generational voice, but the delivery, the you know, the vulnerability, the ability to emote and have that kind of, you know, pure vocal chops it's almost, you know, it's ridiculously hard to find. I think, too, you you rarely get somebody who crosses all lines, right? So we talked about it a little bit with some of the other artists, but this is somebody who indie rockers liked, hip-hop people liked, hard rock. I mean, it was just that she was a universal sound and, and dance music, soul music. It was just a, it was a great, respected sound across. And I, and I think those artists are, are rare when they come up that kind of, everybody loves, everybody loves this album. It's a great album. I remember one of the great endorsements, and this is from our mother, Jeremy, my mother that, um, you know, that, and she's, you know, she's a passive listener at best and, you know, likes music, but, uh, I had put together an iPod for her with, you know, a thousand song or so songs I thought she'd like, or that she could just put on, you know, repeat and Only a listen thousand. to. And, um, She's like, the one thing that stuck out to her was Amy Winehouse, and all she'd ever heard about Amy Winehouse was, and this was several years after she had, um, or maybe not even when she, once before she, this was before she died, but after she became tabloid fodder, and she was like, I keep hearing this voice, and it's Amy Winehouse, and I was shocked. I didn't know she was that good. I thought she was just crazy. <laughs> so, you know, sort of had that, you know, I think, 
you know, grandparents would like her, you know, she's sort of spanned a genera- the generations. Well, I think, you know, one of the interesting things also is that she really did combine, um, I mean, I, I was I was living in England at the time for, for high school, and so I, I got a really, um, well, I would say perhaps I got, yeah, kind of an overdose. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it, it was something where, like, she did combine this sort of indie or punk aesthetic as well, um, just in terms yeah. of what she looked like and the fact that, you know, she was mad at with tattoos and had a cool sense of style. Um, but but had this incredibly old yeah. voice. Yeah, I mean, that was or not not old. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, it was really... I, so you, meant, you mentioned endorsements, and I actually thought that the uh, the one you were going to bring up, though, wasn't, wasn't going to be our, our grandmother. I thought it was going to be the Tony Bennett endorsement in the movie Amy. Um, oh yeah. When he basically says, you know, I, look, I've I've had I've sung a lot of duets in my life. Um, Ella, Aretha, Amy. It's that simple. And I was like, wow. holy yeah, that's shit! A big one. You know, that is like, I'm I'm sort of willing to take a back seat and and you know defer to somebody like that. So. Yeah, Tony wasn't able to make it to the brother 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 con. Uh, Podcast. He today, called. But he sends his regards. Yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I know that. But no, it is. It's remarkable. I and I don't think that was insincere at all. I, I think no. they're. You know, I think people just the people have heard of the way she said. You know, I I was watching some Aretha, um, on um, sound breaking, uh, which is the PBS uh, special. We'll, we'll talk about it on a later date. But I was watching Aretha sing, and Aretha had the same. You know, Aretha Franklin had the same or Amy Winehouse had the same sort of thing that Aretha Franklin had, which is that none of it looked like it cost her any breath. Um, it looked all, it all looked really effortless. And couldn't come and from two differently sized people as well, which I think is kind yeah, of an yeah. interesting point, you know? Um, yeah, that, I mean, it just, but you just never, you, it was like, oh, this just, you know, it's like, it's like having a megaphone built into your throat, you know, it just, yeah. it, it's so big. Anyway. I, I also highly recommend seeing that movie, Amy. Yeah. I um, yeah. <clears throat> I always love that album, but I, that movie really, you know, brought it home. Absolutely. So, what's your uh, what is the um, what's next on the hip hop list? So, moving into 1995 here, um, and this actually may be of all of the sophomore surges on here. I think this may be the sort of the most profound development. Um, and you know the the biggest sort of impact that lasts with me, and that's that's Mob Deep's The Infamous. Um, you know their their first album, Juvenile Hell, uh, came out in 1993. I think going back and listening to it, I, it's actually a pretty good album. Um, and you know it it doesn't have like nearly the same sort of um, nearly the same impact. I think you know for for me or or it didn't have quite the same splash. But I think a big part of that was also the fact that it just got like totally eclipsed in '93 by Thirty Six Chambers, um, and then the following year, Nas came out, who's also from Queensbridge, who sort of stole whatever thunder they were gonna have on like a promotional circuit or, or as far as distribution was concerned. So there's there's like I mean this is this is also proof like it's a good East Coast hardcore or attempt at a hardcore rap album, um, you know, uh, but it just it just didn't land, and part of that was luck. Um, I think you know moving forward. To ninety five, um, this is where again you get this you get this sort of pair uh, a, a pair of guys who have clearly developed like an incredible chemistry between each other. You have Havoc who is um, just got these killer samples um, and incredibly like tight drum programming, 
Um, and, you know, it, it paints this, like, incredibly bleak. I mean, like, it, it's sort of the rap equivalent of Joy Division to me. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I can see that, yeah. Yeah, and then you have Prodigy, who is just got this insanely sort of detached, fucked up, wasted youth flow. Um, and I think this guy is, like... I mean, you realize, you, you, it sort of, it, it sinks in very quickly that he is way too young to, to have this sort of, um, to be this cavalier about life and death. I mean, it really does sort of be, like, yeah. Uh, to and, be a ghost already? Well, there's no <clears throat> such thing as halfway, you know. <laughs> no, it's, and, but I mean, I, I, I've raised the same point, and I think actually when, when Vince Staples' album came out last year, um, that was, this was the thing that I kept, I kept pointing back to and saying, you know, there is this sort of like, complete detachment from um uh from reality which is like clearly a a function of trauma um that that really is just kind of eerie and you know i think there there are a couple of a couple of anecdotes that i think are are worth sharing here but like i just i wanted to get your guys impression on this album first because i i mean i love it yeah this album to me is kind of coincides with i think i illimatic in this album i almost i didn't actually know they were a year apart so thanks for clarifying that I, I always kind of put them together because they both nail that that new york gangster rap you know hardcore sound to me same shit and there's, there's, too. <clears throat> yeah exactly queen's bridge and there's just that distance and and kind of uh you know lack it's an emotional record but it's also like a, a, a lack of emotion or you're at an arm's length always with this record and and uh, it, you know, it's one of my favorite hip hop albums of all time. I, I think hip hop in general, you find it's hard to get a great album out of hip hop. So whether it's your your debut or your your sophomore surge, as we're talking today, but when when you hit a, a truly like start to finish great album, it's pretty powerful. And, and this album is one that I go back to always. I mean, Shook Ones, which when referenced earlier literally makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It's just, it's just a killer it's, track. Yeah. You know, it's, I think I put it in the, in the uh, you know, and this is not an exhaustive list, but up there with, um, you know, a couple Joy Division tunes and, you know, maybe the Mercy Seat by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds is, is just one of the scarier Murder songs. Murder ballads. <laughs> it's just a, it's a scary fucking song. It is. And, uh, I always reminds me of, you know, city buses and subway trains and just kind of like neighborhoods you shouldn't be in. It's a, it's a great... <laughs> it is the soundtrack track. for the neighborhood you shouldn't be in, yeah. It is, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think on top of that, like, there is, there is um, underlying all this, like, a, a level of sort of, like, musical intuition, which I really appreciate. And, you know, I think um, one of the cool things that, that like, uh, and sort of reading about this album over the years that like you know Havoc was such a like huge crate digger himself um and you know it was that that little it was a tiny little Herbie Hancock uh uh, sample that produced um that produced Shook Ones Part 2 which of course was like um sort of a, a remix of a demo that they'd done a year earlier um, and actually written when they were both 19, which I still find, like, astounding. Yeah, it's um, amazing. I mean, these guys were so young when they were doing this stuff that it's, like, it, it, it's, sort of, it's sort of unbelievable to me that they had, that it sounds now like they had, the pers- they had this sort of level of perspective on life that they did. Um, then again, I think you, you age, like, at three times the pace um, if, you, if you grow up in that context. So, um, but there was uh, a lot of New York hip hop out at the time too that just didn't have any of the stuff you just referenced. So I mean, there was other groups 
whether it was Smith and Wesson, there was, you know, a few groups of that same kind of underground, you know, kind of streets, you know, gangster rap, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, I could, you could totally take or leave or at the time, yeah, we all listened to them, but, but did not stand the test of time. And and I think that says a lot for I think that's sort of, I mean, I think, and yeah, you're absolutely right. And, uh, testament to that is their first album. Right. I mean, that's what that's really what their first album was. It was a sort of run of the mill. Like, yes, it was the rebirth of New York hardcore rap, um, I, I, you know, but I think and partly this may have been just a function of, of proximity to Nas and, and Elmatic. Um, but, you know, I think they were sort of everybody was was getting a lift. I mean, at that point, you had Biggie, Jay-Z, Nas and and Mob Deep all on the New York circuit at the same time. Um, so it was a pretty great time to be uh, to be in, in New York rap. But I just wanted to share quickly like uh one of these awesome anecdotes because um basically prodigy like in in um remembering this song and sort of the, the writing process um is is pretty straightforward that they were so like fucked up and twisted on you know weed coke and and 40s oh, um that they actually didn't remember uh, recording this sample, uh, and so they sort of woke up one morning and hit play on the tape recorder, and all of a sudden they had, you know, the the instrumental to Shook Ones Part Two, which basically means that it's the satisfaction um, yeah, exactly. of, <laughs> of of rap, uh, which I kind of love. Like I, I think that that's a perfect parallel there. And it's you know two of the two of the greatest songs of all time in recorded history, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. And then the. So, the one other the one other feature here that I just I think is worth mentioning is is just the fact that uh, Eye for an Eye um, is just a, a really like another sort of powerful jarring um, frightening tune. I mean, it sounds like a, a should be the score for a horror flick, um, but you know that's one where I think I was always sort of interested that Raekwon um, broke out of uh, broke out of the sort of unofficial policy of Wu Tang, um, which was that you know they wouldn't perform on other people's albums. They were really focused on, you know, just doing Wu-Tang's thing. Um, but he was in the studio when this was happening, and he was just sort of so moved by the beat and thought it was such a great tune that, like, you know, he couldn't sort of hold himself back. So that's how he ended up on there. Nice. Nice. Did not know that. Well, uh, I think um, speaking of hip-hop in New York in, um, you know, the early to mid-'90s, uh, the next album we're going to talk about is... Uh, Neutral Milk Hotels in the Airplane Over the Sea. Um, <laughs> From the streets of New York to the college town of Athens, Georgia. Is yeah, that... actually, yeah, it's funny. I did a little bit of uh, reading about these guys. These guys all, you know, all the original Elephant Six guys all grew up um, together in, in Ruston, Louisiana. Uh, they were all faculty brats at um, Louisiana Tech. But um, In the Airplane Over the Sea is another one of those albums. I mean, A, it's a quantum leap from uh, their first album, uh, which is also very, you know, it's nice, but it, again, and you see the you see the groundwork laid. But in the airplane over the sea is is just a, I think a masterpiece. Uh, it's one of my favorite albums of all time, and I also think that it is it, it's that one album. Jeremy and I uh, uh, always say that it's that album that you don't think anyone else is going to like, and everybody else loves. Um, Any. It's one of those ones that, for whatever reason, it has real staying power with people, even people that don't have the same sort of catalog interests of uh, in uh, music as you do. Um, yeah, I think Fish covers Airplane Over the Sea often. is <laughs> a band that uh, I think all three of us can universally hate together. Yeah, but um, one, two, three. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean it's a, it's a. I came across this album 
you know, back in the day of like crate digging myself and trying to find new music and, and a guy I worked with when I was living in Austin, Texas at the time turned me on to this band was just like, Oh, you should buy this album. And not knowing anything other than that, I took it home and liked the album cover and I think I called Wyndham that night and was like, I don't know if you're going to like this, but it's really fucking good. Yeah, then I went and, down, we uh, met in New Orleans, and he gave me the yeah. this tape, um, I believe, Built a Spill on the other side. Yeah. And, uh, Keep it like a you know, it was like, we were riding around, I'm like, what is, this is fucking <clears throat> phenomenal. You know, it was like this Salvation Army marching band music and, you know, kind of punk rock and... Uh, horn sections and just really haunting lyrics and the guy's a phenomenal writer phenomenal poet really and then kind of the you know two albums and disappeared too I mean you know this is the talk second about, album and the last album talk about making your own <laughs> mythology um it, it there nothing nothing provides a greater uh level of uh mystery than just you know flat out disappearing for 20 years after you make a masterpiece well I think too this album in general I mean it's really beautiful it's really pretty you know you've got the opening king of care flowers and two-headed boy and it also can rock you know uh, holland 1945 is uh, that's an album that's a song that i you know run to or mm-hmm. go to the gym to and, and turn up as loud as i can um his voice is really unique the uh the instrumentation is really unique and then you know we could talk a little bigger picture you know and, and originally from Louisiana I think these guys kind of honed their sound at University of Georgia in Athens and uh, with a bunch of the Elephant Six Collective there and, and everybody played on each other's albums but nobody nobody's ever really sounded like Neutral Milk it's, it's a complete unique entity um, you know now you have bands that kind of you can say oh he kind of sounds like uh, Jeff Magnum or, or Neutral Milk but back then there was really nothing quite like that nope and um you know, I, I um, you know, I'd, I'd read, uh, you know, I've read pretty deeply on this album just because I like it so much. There's two, again, I'll, I'll give you, I'll throw out two uh, little fun tidbits that um, are, uh, one is that the entire thing was played through a bo- broken amp um, with, uh, that was, uh, I, and for whatever reason, the, the engineer and everybody, um, nobody wanted him to play that sound they just wanted to replace the amp and he insisted on doing it and it it really defines the album i don't know how they reproduce it um the other is a more somber note when um um the colbert report went off the air um stephen colbert this was the the song that he exited um with um and the reason being is that you know he his father and brother died in a in a plane crash and so he always thought that these lyrics on this album were specifically written for his ears and it, and you can see how that would happen but i think a lot of people find this to be a really personal album they kind of dig what they want and i mean to be honest, it's you know sort of loosely based on diary of anne frank yeah so <laughs> it is fun you, yeah, yeah it's about tragedy i mean there's there's no question about it. and so i think it's for, you know people personalize that and and a lot of different ways, but it's it's a really jarring record in that respect. But yeah, I think it's another one too where you talk about a sophomore surge, where we talked about Dino earlier and um, Nirvana, and there were probably people, a few, maybe like two or three people cooler than me at the time who heard the first album before this album. But uh, you know, in reality, it's another one where I think people went back and heard on Avery Island, and we're like, "Oh, this is actually pretty good too." You know, yeah, yeah. This I reminds me of the second over- one. 
Exactly. I think Airplane Over the Sea was really a lot of people's introduction to this band. And, and uh, you know, I'm just amazed. Like I said, you know, my wife loves this album. You guys love this album. Random people that I know just love this album that don't necessarily subscribe to the type of music that we talk about on this pod. You know who it just yeah. occurs to me is uh, it fills a sort of similar space a few years later um, is Beirut. You know, mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. has that has that sort of like unifying yeah um but but has that really sort of like unifying quality where um you know the captain of the football team and uh like the drama nerd um you know both like like meet each other at that concert (laughs) yeah i mean it's like and and i like beirut an awful lot and so this isn't a um uh in, in any way uh an attempt to slag beirut but i just i find in the airplane over the sea i just lyrically such a cut above uh so many things i find that it's a um, you know, I, I just think that I think it was a once in a you know once in a lifetime kind of uh, meeting of of you know the right the right music, the right production, and and the right correct you know the proper writer to to carry it off. Yeah. So and of course the go. production yeah produced also by a guy. Well, it's it, they were all it was a very like um, sort of sort of incestuous group right with Elephant Six. Um, you know, and they, there was a lot of crossover between this band and, and OTC, Olivia Tremor Control, and, and Apples and Stereo, some of your other favorite groups, right? I yep, absolutely, and I think uh, Schneider produced all of them, right? He, he did, yeah, he was the main producer, and then um, I think a lot of the Olivia Tremor, Tremor Control guys played on this album and vice versa. I never got to see, I did see Olivia, Olivia Tremor Control and Apples and Stereo in live a few times in their prime. I did not get to see Nutramilk Hotel in their prime, but Wynn and I did see them on their, their last tour. And, uh, you know, again, it was just one of those, like, there's a few times when you go to a rock show or you go to, um, or you listen to an album with friends, it just felt like that, like everybody in the audience was your friend yeah. and we all were there for the you know same reason, that we just loved everything these guys put out, you know, the, the two albums and this one being the, the main one. And, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, the parallel I can draw, I suppose, is, um, and it's so far um, emotionally in the opposite direction, is the night I went to see Scarface re-released in the cinema, and I don't think there was a single person in there that didn't know every line of dialogue, <laughs> and it was very it was very liberal about uh, shouting it out, so it was, became like a scream-along. It's pretty great, but um, yeah, there was something about... Uh, seeing Neutral Milk Hotel, and there's such a galvanizing record that, you know, it was one of those nights that you wound up, uh, you know, with your arms around the video store clerk next to you. <laughs> anyway, all right, well, that, that that's the end of my list. How about you? I think that wraps it up for me, too. Um, should we call it this time, or Jeremy? Let's call it. Yeah, I'm good. I think all it's right. a great list. That's right. a wrap. That's it for today's episode of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing, and from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian, see you next time.